That was automation uh, 20 years ago was a tape that, robot, That was like man. the greatest day of my life. So, hey, welcome to Arrested DevOps, episode 44, Infrastructure is Code. I am your co-host, Matt Stratton, at Matt Stratton on Twitter. And I'm your co-host, Trevor Hess, at Trevor G. Hess on Twitter. Arrested DevOps is brought to you by 10th Magnitude, a cloud services company that figures if you're listening to this podcast, you must be pretty cool. You can find out about joining their cloud services team at arresteddevops.com slash 10th Magnitude. This episode is also brought to you by VictorOps. From initial alarm to final retrospective, the mission at VictorOps is to make on-call suck less. In the live infrastructure timeline, get real-time context and see annotated alarms with resolution documentation. Visit arresteddevops.com slash VictorOps and sign up for a 14-day free trial to see how they're actually making on-call suck less. I said that. I read that ad really badly, so I apologize, VictorOps, um, but that's okay. We're going to move on with our lives. <laughs> this episode is also brought to you by Datadog, a monitoring tool that helps bridge the gap between operations and dev teams. Datadog brings together system metrics, changes, alerts, and events from over 70 common infrastructure tools, such as Chef, Docker, AWS, so that dev and ops teams can share their key data and alerts in a single place and collaborate on issues in real time. Datadog is available for a 14-day so trial at restedevops.com. Uh, about infrastructure as code, and and this is not really talking. But it's kind of a follow-up on our episode on configuration management, which you could check out at arresteddevops.com/nine. But really thinking more about this idea of treating our infrastructure as code. So our one of our first panelists is Josh Timberman from Shaft Software. So Joshua, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. I'm a software developer at Chef, and I've been here for a while, one might say. Uh, I've done a lot of different things here over the last seven years that I've worked at Chef, uh, and my main background is in systems administration and operations. And uh, when I'm not working, I like to drink craft beer and play games of all kinds. That sounds awesome, <laughs> on all counts. Thanks, Josh. Uh, we also have Eric Sorensen from Puppet Labs. Tell us about you, Eric. Hi, so yeah, I've been doing uh, production operations for a long time. Uh, probably my first uh, real job was uh, running an ISP when 14.4K modems were the new hotness. Um, I used CF Engine for a long time and uh, got into Puppet. Uh, my last job before I started at Puppet was uh, doing a Puppet implementation at Apple. And uh, now I work here doing uh, product management, which I've almost got figured out what that means. <laughs> Awesome. Sounds like most project managers I talk to. And it's funny, I, I, I did come up the same way uh, working at an ISP when, yeah, 14.4 was lightning fast. So I'm sure we can sit and compare abacuses sometime. <laughs> and uh, so rounding out our pan panel is uh, Ansible's very own Robin Bergeron. Robin, uh, you joined Ansible recently, but tell us a little bit about yourself before then as well Ooh, as now. Sure. And look, I've got this handy dandy. Uh, name bar that you guys won't be able to see when you listen to this podcast, but if you're watching it on the internet, look! Uh, so, hi, I'm Robin. Uh, I work at Ansible. I've been there for a month. Uh, I guess we get in the Wayback Machine. I was a sysadmin from 1996 to February 2000, which was obviously the right time to quit, not like in December or anything. Um, I've been a business analyst. Uh, I spent seven years not working and just raising my kids, which I, you know, 
attempt to continue to do while now having a full-time job again. Um, my last big gig was working at Red Hat. I was a Fedora project leader for two and a half years. System D is not my fault. We're, we're definitely, uh, we talk, we're talking a little bit before, for, for listeners, you know that sometimes we have shows that are, that feel interview focused, and this is definitely going to be much more of a panel discussion. I wanted to get some, some folks that uh, I wanted to have on the show and talk uh, in depth about this topic of, of infrastructure as code. And so that first topic basically is kind of be like, what the heck is infrastructure as code? Just when we use that word, what do we mean by that? I mean, to me, like, I know when I talk to people about about what I mean when I talk about treating my infrastructure as code, uh, it goes down to this, like, I like to tell, because usually when you're talking about this, you might be talking to operational folks, and they say, you know, DevOps is a two-way street. A lot of times, you know, those of us who are, who are you know, sysops or sysadmins or come from a tech ops background, when we hear DevOps, we think it means, like, make those devs carry pagers and give a shit about uptime, right? But there's also that other thing of, hey, there's things that we can learn. You know, some of those devs over there, like, that part of the industry... Had, you know, over the last 20 years, or la at least last 10 years, have developed some really good practices, and we can steal them and and do things like just as simply, I guess, at a high level. To me, you know, treating the configuration and the 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 way that you look at your infrastructure is that it's to me it means that it's version, it's modularized, and it's testable in an automated way. So that's what I think, but I could be wrong. There was a cool conference here in Portland uh, last week uh, called Atomicon. It was the first uh, sort of uh, edition of that con of that conference. Uh, Heavy Water Ops put it on, and we had back-to-back mm -hmm. uh, -back, uh, keynotes from uh, from Luke from Puppet and Adam Jacob from Chef on subsequent days, and it, it was actually really cool. There was a meta talk uh, halfway through the second day. Uh, where the speaker, whose name I, I don't recall right now, um, did a survey of the previous talks. And of the 10 previous talks, like seven of them started off with a definition of what infrastructure as code was. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, very, very similar to kind of the, the you know, establish your ground rules and define what DevOps is before you start talking about it. But, I mean, I thought for me, the most compelling definition that came out of that was, you know, if your entire infrastructure is destroyed by some natural disaster, if you've done infrastructure as code properly, you'll be able to rebuild it in a new place using... Uh, just the contents of uh, a version control repository. Yeah, that's the, Joshua, isn't that the Jesse, Jesse Robbins quote that I'm going to quite mangle, which is that it means that you can reconstruct your business as long as you have access to your version control system, a data backup, and compute resources. Yes, but I it was actually Adam Jacob came up with that originally. Oh, and Jesse just says it all the time? Or says <laughs> it all the time? Just yeah, use, it, use it as a quote. We, we put it in, in, uh, in slide material early on, so it just got propagated <laughs> out, but uh, Adam, Adam's Joshua is, my, Joshua is my chef historian. Yes. <laughs> every time I say something wrong, because I know it, like, anecdotally, he's like, dude, I, you don't understand. I was in the shit. <laughs> I was there, man. <laughs> um, and I'm, and I'm a pedantic, so there's that. Do, does anybody have, I don't want to say it necessarily, well, I mean, it could be a contradicting opinion or, def or thought about that. I think you get started with infrastructure as code, by having a repository. So a lot of the infrastructure po folks that I've worked with have, you know, said, well, what's, what's Git? What's TFS? Like, I just keep my, I just keep my, my scripts in notepad. That's fine, right? 
when you guys were talking about, you know, how you went to uh, Atomicon. Am I saying that right? Was it Atomicon yes. or Autom? Right. Yeah. Um, there was a, there was money writing on the pronunciation of that, but yeah, yeah it was like is it Automaticon or Atomicon or you know Opti Optimus Prime and Megatron? Um, when people, you know, when you go and you see that like all of these people have a different definition that they're laying out at the beginning of their at the beginning of each of their talks, just to sort of level set, you know, what you know, sort of a, a common language. I think what that really sort of indicates is that people don't just have like one set. Uh, meaning for themselves of you know what this actually means, right? Every time you think about it, it's always subject to a new experience or a new thing that has, you know, either gone very well for you or occasionally has been like a complete utter and disaster for you, which kind of changes how you think about what that actually means for yourself. So I think in a lot of cases, it's making sure that you can, whatever it is that you're doing, that you're you're doing it in a way that you can continue, that you're open and willing to evolve. You know that what you're considering to be infrastructure is code and what that actually means to you. Yeah, I mean I think that's 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 why some of those definitions we've talked about they're they're kind of purposely high level, right? They don't go in, in as as and you and you can probably swap some of that out. And I think there's even been some stuff with that now that I know it's an Adam quote, but whatever. Um, where I've even seen us move the words around a little bit as things evolve, but the the intent is still very similar. Uh, so I'm actually interested not having gone to Automatomicon um, <laughs> as to just kind of what are some of the other definitions people had because I'm, I'm just curious, you know, at, at, that, at a conference like that, you know, what were people considering that was different than what we've kind of just talked about? I think there was pretty widespread, you know, agreement that that was, you know, fundamentally it meant, you know, pull, using good DevOps practices and pulling software, as you mentioned, pulling software development practices into uh, into your infrastructure operations and and um, you know trying to make um, make things go uh, both ways. There, there's a, you know, um, I think there's an interesting. You, you mentioned ten years. I think it's actually way further back than that because, like, if you think about RCS. That's been around for a really long time, and yet, as Robin pointed out, it can be a novel uh, experience for people to see your infrastructure, uh, you know, your your scripts and, and whatever it is that you use to run run your systems, checked in versions, having good commit logs and a good audit trail, and being able to, you know, uh, go back through from an archaeological sense and understand why something is the way it is, and at a you know in your your kickstart configuration or your chef or puppet configuration and be able to divine intent from the current state of things that that's, that can be just that can be a fairly revolutionary concept for a lot of people yeah I think that's like what Trevor was saying is what most a lot of a lot of admins what they know about get or TFS is well there's that one server that my devs use that I have to keep running for them that runs get on it I think you know, or again, sometimes you know you have folks keeping scripts in source control, which is, but they're not necessarily version, but at least it's a place to keep them, which is a start. Um, kind of what I was talking about. Again, I was just sort of throwing the data out there. I was thinking kind of like the dawn of like extreme programming and things like that. Uh, not necessarily because it's more those overall practices. And uh, another thing is like I'll talk about something like being ten years ago, and then realize that I'm older than I think I am. And something that, that seems like it was only 10 years ago was really, like you said, 20 years ago, and then I go and I'm sad. Yeah, uh, I, I think about 20 years ago, and like it was really cool when we automated all our things with expect 
Um, and when, <laughs> when we got the big tape robot, so we didn't have to go around with little DLT tapes to the 200 servers, the four of us. But I think the next level up is is that, you know, kind of test-driven development. And, and that was kind of a, that didn't exist when I started out doing configuration management even. Like like the concept of unit testing your CF engine code was pretty pretty revolutionary. Uh, and, and now it's kind of like, and I, I actually really credit um, the Chef community for really pushing this forward and being it like like if you're not if you're not testing you're doing it wrong uh, and making the tools and the the um, sort of supported supported ecosystem around that so that it's easy to do the right thing. It's always so interesting and powerful when I introduce somebody to testing the infrastructure code. Because they're like, wait, I can actually like make sure the thing I did actually was the thing I did? That's incredible. One of the things I, I like about the the unit testing aspect of testing the configuration management code is that you're testing the inputs. Because we, I, I don't know anybody who has the benefit of working in an environment where they only have one single version of one single operating system. It's all different everywhere. You've got, especially if you work in big enterprises, you have everything and it all has to work together and if you're if you're using puppet or chef or i'm sure ansible has uh cross-platform like logic in, in some way um mm -hmm. you have to do conditional branching and find out you know if i'm on smart os then i have to do these weird things because smart os is different than linux and both of those are completely different than windows and well we just might as well just toss everything that we're doing with that because it's just not going to like map the same way so being able to test that kind of stuff in uh, in a unit testing framework is has been super valuable because we can catch regressions like somebody messes up the the support for our popular uh, our most popular platform right whatever that may be. I, I think the thing is like the idea of testing things is not foreign to um, sysadmins, but the idea of being able to automate the testing of them. So we're used to saying something like, well, I'm going to try my script and see what it does, and I'll do exploratory testing and things like that. That was my life. <laughs> yeah. This was another great Atomicon quote that uh, everybody has a test environment. Some people are fortunate to have that environment be different from the one that runs your production. <laughs> my <laughs> test environment and the way my tests are confirmed is via Twitter when everything goes down. Bye-bye. So I was thinking about that too. Like there was there was a conversation um, on, on Reddit. And I wanted to bring this up and, and there had actually, there were some good follow-ups on that, but I, I'd like to, I think, surface this a little bit more. And and again, we, we keep talking about, it goes back to this idea of test-driven development for InfraCode. And I think sometimes that can be kind of hard because you're you're not necessarily you know there's so much dependency that happens it's not like you know as as easy as it and not them saying that is easy i'm not i don't write real dev code but i but presumably if i'm sitting and writing a module or a class i can put a breakpoint in and say it only needs to go this far to see if the test is green versus there's so much stuff that could go down path in my config code so i i kind of i like to write my tests but I don't. But I have to write some code to get them around. But one thing that I always thought was really interesting when we were, when I was helping people learn this, is a lot of the oh, I don't have time to write those tests. I don't have time to write the tests. As I say, the thing that you don't realize is that after you've written the tests, writing your code actually got your infra code actually got really easy because you did a lot of the big thinking in writing the test. You know, you're implementing that thing you wanted to do. So in some ways, it's kind of test-driven, but maybe not necessarily in the mechanism of I'm going of red-green refactor-driven. 
would you what are your thoughts on that uh well if i could go i think the critique that you're you're talking about if it's the the one that you're putting in the, sh in the show notes there yeah i didn't uh, i didn't get to actually reading it out loud yet if you would like to you can the comment is if i if i can so i'm not going to read a, a reddit poster's yeah. uh, thing word for word it's just dangerous but um we'll put a link <laughs> to it in the show notes <laughs> the, uh, but the the point of it is like just I, I would sum it up as just doing unit tests for a uh, for your configuration code is not sufficient, which I totally agree with. That's totally true. It's good. It's good, but it is necessary, but it's not sufficient to to get good coverage. But I think that the the world has kind of evolved since the post came out, and sort of the the state of the art has advanced to actually doing integration style tests with infrastructure code. And I think this is a fairly new development. There's a lot of stuff that's still in flux. Certainly in the in the public community, you know, there there are some. We have like our spec uh, server. We have server spec. We have a few different tools that people are using. But the the upshot is that once you have a framework which allows you to spin up a set of machines that are systems under test and to provide assertions about the way those machines interact with one another using the infra code, then you've gotten a lot further down the road. And that's something that you're doing more than just like, like you said, uh, like Trevor said, testing that what you said you did was actually what you said. Uh, you're actually right. testing interaction with those systems. It's one of the things where I've seen, um, and this is something that sometimes we get into, you know, I've gotten into internal arguments with with people of the, the technical level and expertise with the tool like Joshua, who are, you know, really good at this. And I'm not saying I've had this argument with Joshua, but maybe we have. But where they'd say, like, I wouldn't write a unit test to say if I is Nginx installed. Because Chef just took care of that. Why do I have to test for it? I only would write that unit test if I'm doing the branching logic. And my argument is, A, for people who are new to the, to Puppet or Chef or whatever is the technology that you're using, to have them write that test, it's, it's useful. But it's also useful down the road for regression because sure enough, you're like, yeah, well, I know, but maybe someone later is is working on your your module or your playbook or something, and they do something that actually would make that not happen anymore. And but they don't know that that's a thing that matters, so it still has to pass your testing. That's, that's that thing. And then it's also the way that, you know, I've kind of heard it described as you think about the signal in, signal processing, signal out stages of testing. So SLIN is like when we talk about unit testing, which is, did I write a properly formed piece of code? Does my code, so, and so that might include things like, but also unit testing. Like if I tell Puppet to do this, would it actually do that? Yeah, cool. Signal processing is the does Puppet actually work? Does Chef actually, does Ansible actually work? And the good thing is, unless you work for one of those companies, you don't have to care about that. We're doing that for you. But then the signal signal out is the things like the acceptance testing, like the, okay, so if I did install and configure Nginx in a website, there should be something listening on port 80. And as was described by, you know, my colleague uh, Chip, it's the, is what I said what I meant? <laughs> yeah. kind of testing. And then you can take it even further to, Eric, to your point of saying you can test actual full infrastructures as well. But even if you don't have to do something that complicated, it's it's about, because what you said may not have been what you meant or what you needed. So I, I think you bring up another interesting point, Matt, which corresponds to something else you just said. When you're mentioning not necessarily knowing what it is you're trying to test, and that's why it can be challenging to do blue-green, going through with somebody who's just getting started and teaching them how to test that Nginx is installed or that the service is running, that helps them learn the patterns so that they can identify solving a more complex test in the future. Oh, for sure. It's Yeah, you don't want to make your, your first time you write 
and you know a chef spec test something that's crazy branching because then when it doesn't pass you don't know why like is it because you wrote bad spec tests is it because right. you did whatever or just like do just a simple file matcher so that you know how to do that so you can move on and I think that's something in the community that we need to think about is that and I think these tool a lot of the tools do allow for this is being embraceable by someone who's new to it, but that we have to remember, and it goes back to that whole like, well, why would I write a unit test for something? And this goes back to the the that Reddit post, the person's answer was, why would I do that? Because isn't that what Puppet does in the first place is make sure that package is there. So why would I need to test that it was? And it's so because it's a way trusting. of learning the more complicated way of testing. So uh, on the, whether you should write Tests for simple resources in those in those uh, you know in your recipes or in your manifest or whatever. I've come around on that and found that I like the confidence of having 100% test coverage for all the resources in in my <laughs> recipes because that way if one of them gets deleted accidentally because we go on a on a refactoring spree, then I don't have an unexpected result where oh now the package doesn't actually get installed and I actually needed that. So I have to make a conscious choice to go and modify the spec in order to account for that. And I think that brings us into thinking about the using those principles that the that besides being able to test as the individual developer, but having this test coverage and having these tests need to pass in order for you to actually release is is a key of that. And that especially goes into why if you're doing something like that, if you're deploying your 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 config code through a pipeline of some sort, where it has to pass tests, then you very much care about writing regression tests, you know, or making sure they're in there. But what you don't want to do is you regression tests should never be tacked on later, right? Like you build them, you build them because you had a, you know, a lot of times, well, sometimes they're tacked on later because you discovered a bug, right? There's mm -hmm. a, I think it's Paul Reed who will tell the story because I think he was at, at Mozilla at the time where in the, I think it was in the, two, I think it was in 2005, like on the first day of the World Series, they released a version of Firefox that broke MLB.com. So there's still at least up till the last time, whenever I heard him talk about it on the ship show a year or two ago, there was still a regression test in all builds of Firefox to make sure that MLB.com still worked. <laughs> nice. Because <laughs> they would yes. never break the World Series again. So when, when we think about this, when and I want to think about this idea of using a pipeline for InfraCode, and both from the perspective of a, of a greenfield, I I'm not doing infra today, and I want to do my my Ansible project now or whatever. I'm going to start doing things the, the 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 right hard you know the the right way, not the not the kind of hand way I've been doing it. Versus the I have a really nicely embedded Im implementation of Puppet, but now we want to do this in a DevOpsy way. So what are the differences in and challenges you might have in in either or of those uh, scenarios? Do you think time is one of them? I mean, the the more tests that you have, the more tests you have, and the better tests you have, the more time it takes to get through them. And I mean, that's sorry, that's a little tautological, but it can get pretty extreme. And you know, if, if it's it's been said that a, a process, the accumulation of process is like your organizational scar tissue. If that's the case, then just like your MLB example, your your acceptance tests are your code bases scar tissue. It's just stuff that has gone wrong over time that you want to make sure won't happen again. And over time, that can be like you know, two, like two to one in terms of lines of code versus the actual code base itself. That can be uh, that. That means that if you have a lot of platforms and you do a lot of tests. It might take 
a lot of time to get through get through a run and that can slow down your your ability to release it can slow down your organizational agility yeah it turns out that developing software is hard and that <laughs> more and more the way that we do uh, infrastructure it the infrastructure itself looks like an application so you know especially when you're talking about doing things with infrastructure as code so having proper testing and doing proper software development is super important and it's worth the time that it takes to do it and to do it right because when you when you accumulate that technical debt like everybody does when you come back to it in six months or a year or even longer it, it's going to bite you and you're going to have to refactor the entire world anyway so you didn't really save any time by taking shortcuts now there's a difference between that and things like you aren't going to need it right like yeah so it's, it's and correct me if i'm wrong but a lot of it i think was talking again like you said the time the time especially the time when you're talking about migrating something that's already there to the uh to the new way of doing it versus doing it the quote-unquote right way the first time and i i think that's usually why when i talk to folks who are getting started i say start doing it right the first time because it's going to be, it's, you know, it's, it's going to, it'll seem like it's making your life a little bit longer, but if you ever want to do it the right way, and, and I'll usually say something like release through a pipeline that does no tests, but you have it there. So now you can add those tests later, right? But have the habit so that from day one, you know that the only way that you can push up a new playbook or, or cookbook is by committing it to source control not by uploading it directly to a server somewhere or, or just doing a thing with it. And then it, it builds those habits because habits are hard to break, and if you, whether they're good or bad. And I think that's the challenge with moving folks who've been doing things one way because it works, right? I mean, if these tools didn't work and didn't make people's life better, everybody except Trevor would have a jo- wouldn't have a job that's on this podcast right now, right? Like it's, there's, there's like, you know, it's they definitely, you know, you don't have to do it the fancy DevOps way to get value out of, out of any of these things. And in fact, I don't know. So does it provide that much more value? I mean, let's, let's play devil's advocate there. Why do I give a shit about doing this the DevOps way? Why can't I just use Puppet the way that I want to and, you know, or just, just run playbooks, you know, and I'm a sysadmin. I, I keep them. I know what I want. I'll keep them on my laptop and just go. So that, that's kind of cool to, to do that. Uh, if, you know, if you're like the one person that can do, can get away with those kinds of things. But in the real world, <laughs> we want to be professionals and we want to do good work because if we, when we don't do good work and we don't act professionally, then that's where we run into problems, where we have a deployment that goes wrong, uh, mistakes that get made. You know, these, these are complex systems that have a lot of cascading factors. So, you know, if you say, oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to push this quick change up and then, oh, wait, why is it taking that long? right? Like who hasn't had that experience anyway? And, you know, when you don't have proper automation around that, being able to recover is, it becomes super difficult. I think it's fine as long as you don't have any other, any coworkers or any customers. Yeah. So if you're a one-man startup, then that's perfectly fine because you are the person who is having a bad day, but instead, otherwise you're basically being sort of disrespectful and making other people have, have yeah, bad like totally. Totally works on my Minecraft server down in my basement, but you know. So what about um, aligning your your thinking about now? This is thinking about a more advanced topic, but it's something that I think we like to talk about is this this great idea that we that we we aspire to, which is aligning your infra code to your app code because 
in theory, I'm not making changes to my infrastructure unless it's in service of this application service that is the reason that my company is here. I guess I'm I'm curious to to see like how advanced of a of a feature and by feature I don't mean feature of the product, but I mean feature of the idea. Like if it's a like ticky ticky box of advanced feature to do that, like how advanced do you need to be? And really what are some of the the things to think about if you're going to pro and con or positive neg and when you're going to kind of look at that? I think it depends on whether or not you have a mature deployment tool in place already or not. And it, it also depends on whether or not you have a, a, a level of complexity that would, that would make it so that you would need to create your own tools in the infrastructure automation tools to deploy your code. Because oftentimes you're really just putting files on a system and making sure that services are started, which is just more system configuration. And if you can, if you can use the tools you have for infrastructure code to uh, version everything and use your packages the way you would, I'm starting to find that it's easier to scale letting the infrastructure tool deploy the code. Like I've been, I've been bashing my head against Octopus for the past two weeks to get it to, to, to work with arbitrary environments while not giving it access to not giving arbitrary environments access to production and it's just been a pain in the neck <laughs> and i would be so much happier if i let a tool besides octopus that was managing the servers deploy the code so that's so that's argument for just saying at the end of the day your application is just another configuration point anyway so use your configuration management you know, to or your you know your infracode tool to actually do software deployment as well as is 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 definitely a pattern that can exist. I'm I'm also thinking one of the challenges that comes up when we go to talk about this is that again uh, is first of all like I will tell people you know they'll say well can you use Chef to deploy software I'm like well of course you can and I say but if you already have something if you have a rich Capistrano thing set up already that works for you that's great then keep doing that. Like, cause just in general, I always recommend to people, I'm like, when you're getting something new, like solve your gap problems first, right? Don't yeah. go replace the shit that actually works with another tool. Cause you didn't accomplish much except buy some, get something different, yeah. right? Fill your gap. But I think it requires a super high level of DevOps. If DevOps is a thing that can be measured uh, to be able to do this because your infra, the, whoever's writing the infra code and managing it, so to speak, or, you know, is authoring it, needs to be now comp very tightly coupled from a pipeline perspective to the app code. If you want to really be able to align them together, you can't have the, you know, um, the infrastructure team using Git and Jenkins and the application team using, you know, um, TeamCity and uh, Mercurial because those pipelines, they need you, it's almost like a common pipeline or, or, or parallel pipelines. I don't know, am I... Yeah. Making I, think sense. You, I think that helps. Um, I was just going to say, you, you use the magic, the D word, DevOps, and I think sort of the, the substitution there might just be like you have to have a high degree of sort of trust and transparency. And I think, and I think this is where Trevor was going to go, is uh, I think for those things to be even remotely effective or possible, like there's got to be a base level of simplicity, right? Like if these, if one group is like, we insist on using this tool and it's a tool that other people are just like, dude, I do not have like a month to even learn that. Like you're just, that's sort of the beginning of, of a unhappy relationship. So I think it, it depends on, yeah. you know, how, how simple your, your common languages are between 
language tools, whatever are that are you know sort of shared between those two groups. I mean, for that I, to be like a surmountable problem rather than a maybe someday when we all know how to use each other's things. Right, and that's that's kind of where I was going. Was you you know you don't have to immediately stop and say okay. We're, let's all you know. Let's all converge on two tools. Let's use Git and let's use you know Travis CI, and everybody will be happy. You can if you're you know if using Matt's example, if if the devs are using Mercurial, they can package up the software and give it to the infrastructure team initially. But that's just another wall that you need to take down. And but doing it all at once is not necessarily a solution either. I think the key is, uh, on Matt touched on this definitely. Baby steps, like you can't yeah. just uh, burn everything down and, you know, <laughs> don't fix what isn't broken uh, and take steps here and there because otherwise you start, you know, if you have like 25, uh, we tried this and we failed. We tried this and we failed. People get very sort of demoralized about things like that. Small successes, one by one, like not only make people feel good, but it's like you're getting like five minutes here and ten minutes there. Next thing you know, you're like, woo, I've got like a whole week to, you know, <laughs> I'm not patching fires anymore. I actually have time to like move us forward and do amazing things. Yeah, you're chipping, you're I chipping make- away. It's continuous improvement for sure. Yay. And I'm a, I, I tell people all the time and my workers are, I'm sure, tired of hearing it's one of the, one of the Matt Stratton and solution architect tropes which is the crawl, walk, run, right? You know, don't, don't have the first thing that you want to do with chef be go manage like your, you know, your, you know, your big storage array, manage it, like learn how to install Apache first, like, like do something that, you know, don't pick the most complicated thing to be your very first thing for often good reasons. That's why people want to do that because they're like, well, that's a thing we haven't had a good answer for. So we better do something with that, but you have to crawl before you walk. And like Robin said, you get small successes and they they work for you from a time perspective because you can do little things which then give you more resources to do more things. But it can also be very much when we think about making any kind of a transformation in an organization, evangelizing even in spite of yourself, right? Like, yeah, it's just proof of it, you know? You, it's when I think about organizations I've been part of or seen who go through agile transformations, you don't do the whole thing. You have a pilot project and you stack the deck on that project, right? You pick a something about this part of the company that has value but is not going to be some super legacy thing. And you're going to staff that with the people that you know are the most open to change and everything. So it's going to be really successful. And then everyone's going to say, wait. I want to do things the way those fellas over there are doing it because they're being super successful. And then the same thing, if you start aligning to these small successes and then people, you know, people say, wait a minute, we're not having these outage, this particular outage we used to have all the time. Or now when we build servers, this one thing is a little better. It's like, now we can make some more things better. (laughs) Trevor in the chat just said it's trickle down DevOps. So I don't know why I didn't say it out loud because that was worth it. I don't know. I, I thought it might have been a bad connotation. <laughs> There's definitely been some good, you know, high-functioning organizations that I've been a part of that, um, you know, almost certainly by accident. But um, when, when we were able to get to uh, a, a place of, you know, really collabor- collaboration, what that looks like in terms of infrastructure as code is stuff like we, the, the application developers start uh, adopting in their pipelines the ability to output versioned native 
operating system packages, like versioned RPMs. And instead of it being like an obscure tarball, you know, tarball that's plopped plop down somewhere, a WAR file or whatever, it's actually a, uh, you know, a package that can sit alongside the operating system packages and can be managed by the configuration management system. The same thing as the, you know, as the rest of the, the rest of the code. So there's a, a more seamless continuum and not that hard, hard line in between like, well, you just manage the operating system. We're going to take care of the, take care of the application ourselves. And in, in, in that, in that sense, you know, that, that really goes back to that idea of the share, you know, shared responsibility and, and uh, that the blending of, you know, sysadmin practices like building RPMs and spec files and that sort of stuff into into development practices of like you know here's the the ultimate the end state of our CI pipeline is not is something that's actually consumable by the um, by by the team that's going to be responsible for pushing that out onto the machines. Yeah, it's like adjusting those those inputs, and and I think that goes back to thinking about what you know Robin was talking about the you know having the the transparency and the trust is and this by the way for anyone who's listening is when we talk about empathy in devops that's what we're talking about right is that as a developer i understand and empathize that it would make my ops person's life easier if i gave them an rpm versus something obscure it's not i mean there's more to it but that's like what that means and the reason i'm kind of ranting about it is like there's a lot of people there are a lot of talks about empathy in, at DevOps days over the course of last year, and this was used by quite a few people to talk about why the DevOps community was just like about feelings and hug ops and not like doing real work. But that's what we mean. And I think getting to that place helps you really accelerate your velocity because it's it's one fewer step and you're able to now focus more on doing smarter things, right? Like hopefully you're, you're, the, the, the challenge of most sysadmins is that they have to be very technically advanced and you have them do very mundane things. And it's that great quote in the Jess Humble Dave Farley book in Continuous Delivery, which says, having a very skilled person do mundane topics is the surest way of of ensuring error short of sleep deprivation or inebriation. (laughs) So the more that we can, not only does it like free up people's time so their work life is better, which just as a company we should aspire to, we actually want to get our money's worth, right? You know, I mean, I, 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 your, your ops people are, and, and your devs too, but you probably have a lot of people that are doing things that, that they have the ability of providing even greater value to your organization. They'd be happier, sure, and sure. I would be happier knowing they're happier. I, imagine but, a world where Jordan Sissel never had to write FPM. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I'm glad that at least I live in the world where he did write it. Yeah. You know, be better if it would never had to be written. It would be worse to live in the world where he never wrote it. Yes, because totally agree. (laughs) But that's a a response. uh, I guess my point is that's a response to that kind of low trust environment where things come out of you know that we don't feel like we don't have control over or the ability to influence what's delivered from on high to us, and so we have to write these. Tools, which is totally, you know, FPM on its own is totally awesome. It saved my life on more than one occasion, but it saved my life in an environment that was a, lo- you know, a, a low trust environment where I couldn't, I couldn't go go to the team that was delivering me that that code and be like, hey, this thing would really be a lot better if it was if I had the ability to install it in a repeatable way. Yeah. Right, and I think it's, I think it's it's interesting um, that you know, uh, Matt, you brought up the comment about you know. We, we talk about this stuff at DevOps days. Um, I think a lot of it is those of us who are from 
companies who are also open source projects, right? So we see this on both sides of the coin, where you have to have trust and transparency about what people are sort of developing and contributing in a community. And then we see those patterns sort of repeat with, you know, our customers or even in our own companies, because we're all sort of, you know, doing these things on our own again. So it's like, we realize doubly how important these sort of cultural things are and how important they are to making things happen, like in our communities and in our workplaces. And I think maybe we get so doubly exposed that we, we do talk about it a lot, but I think it's also because it's important and matters a lot. Because without think, it, yeah. it's, 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 yeah, and no it's transparency in the with the empathy and the DevOps days, we have to we have to be careful to remember that it, we we claim we understand empathy, but then we we don't acknowledge the whole picture. Like I know one of the things we talk about a lot is remembering that as part of this whole movement and empathy that we also remember about our sales folks, our sales folks and our marketing folks, and including them in the picture. And uh, I I know uh, I actually had a conversation with part of the marketing team at tenth today. About they were they were really upset about a comment that was made at a DevOps event they were at recently, where they were they where somebody had tweeted why why are the companies here? They don't get it. Why are they here? This 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 isn't about you know this is about empathy and culture. Why are the companies and their salespeople here? Well, and I mean the the answer to that is so that we can develop empathy for like people who are using it <laughs> and understanding well, the, the, what the heck is going on out there. I mean without that, I mean it's. It's a gigantic exactly. feedback loop. It's like meta, meta, meta DevOps. It's like yeah. the unicorn. I would, I would direct them, and, and and not to go off way off on topic, but direct them back oh. to our marketing episode. We just talked about all this stuff, and that was a there was a whole, and there were actually some great open spaces. There was a great open space at DevOps Day Chicago last year that was about that. But mm-hmm. uh, I think I think that the point is again whether wherever you're as part of the process of delivering software, thinking about where those inputs and those outputs go, and like Eric, to your point, thinking about when I'm passing something to you, or just as much, like I might sit there and say like, yeah, if we totally automated all this infrastructure with Chef, it would be super rad, but not realize what the impact might be on some other people in a different part of the pipeline and figure out, not necessarily doesn't mean don't do it, but it's don't go and steamroll it and make it this thing. It talks about any type of transfer. Again, the more, the bigger you can make the tent and realize that these things are not really, when we're talking about our infrastructure as code versus just pure straight up config management, which I think are two different things. One kind of encompasses the other. But if we're doing this, first of all, if we're smart people, we're going to absolutely involve people more than ops. If for no reason, then we probably don't know crap about the right way to use some of these tools like Jenkins and Git and stuff like that. You know, maybe we do, maybe we don't, but Hey, or they may already, our dev, you know, friends may already have a beautiful continuous delivery infrastructure that we can just utilize. So it's, uh, but it also is impactful to that. And I think at any time, I think this is, this is an area where it can, it can work that, that collaboration and transparency can, it's either going to pay massive dividends for you or if you do it, if you do it that way or you, you, you whiff on it and it's going to like, it's going to really hit you. There is no middle ground on that one. I don't think, I think you either do it well or you do it. Well, you're either, you're either an open source buffer company or you're not, 
You know, it's you can't just be like, here's some code, but we're not willing to listen because that's just not an effective, you know, and it's the same thing in the workplace. Like, yeah, we're all about the DevOps, but we're not actually going to talk to you. Well, you, you just just go back to doing the things the old way. Don't like pretend and lead people on because that just makes people cry. They think they're going to get a unicorn and they're just going to get a box of Kleenex for their tears. I think most people get it, but I had to I had to kind of remind myself teaching teaching some people uh, about how to use Git and how to use Jenkins recently that you know th- th- these may be people that you that know lots of things about certain areas but. Jenkins and Git are completely new to them, and it's you know you have to you have to go from the beginning and explain it. You can't assume that that those those things that are now intrinsic to you are intrinsic to them, even though you know they may they may have equivalent knowledge about something else, and that may be how you how you've come to know them. You they you know you still need to understand that it's a new thing for them. So uh, before we we move into our our wrap up, I just wanted to know, and especially for I'll kind of direct this anywhere, but in in a, a little bit of a way, I'm directing it more towards uh, Eric and and Shua just because they're more historians on their particular respective place. But what what do you think is really different in the world today of of treating your infrastructure as code versus when you first started working on something like that? And I don't mean first started like going back to when we were using Expect, Robin. I mean like when we were first the first your first ex- experience with truly treating your infrastructure as code in the way we describe it today. What's what's different? What's changed? Everything. <laughs> Everything has changed. And and I'm, I'm not actually that. I'm not actually being snarky about it because there there's the, the way that we build infrastructure, the way that we think about inf- infrastructure is has completely changed in the last five years, let alone in the last ten years. And you you can't be a systems administrator or operations person and survive in the in the technology field today without ha- having an understanding of how to write some kind of code. I don't care what it is, or I, and I don't care what your sophistication level is, but you have to have an understanding of being able to do it. Otherwise, you just can't keep up. That's so everything has changed. I would say there's, uh, I mean, for me, there's really two kind of pieces to it. One of them is kind of the cultural aspect, and it's the movement, you know, uh, uh, the the. the uh, part of DevOps that involves operations people taking development processes and development folks understanding what it means to build, say, monitoring, uh, you know, exporting monitoring out of their application as a first-class th- thing instead of try, uh, having to try to poke through, the, uh, poke through it as a black box. And the other part is the techno- technological aspect of it where there are tools and frameworks for, uh, for testing infrastructure code, for testing you know, your Shaffer Puppet code or your Ansible code or your scripts even. I mean, there, I looked at this uh, Bash test framework the other day. For, and if, so even if you're running your automation in Bash, you have no excuse for not doing tests now. And that, that was just sort of un, uh, uh, kind of unfathomable even, even about five years ago. Yeah. Um, I'll throw in, even though I'm not a totally historian, if that's okay. I think the other big thing that's sort of changed and I think it's sort of a cultural thing, but, you know, 10, 15 years ago, like, if someone came around and said, like, uh, I'd like to use some crazy open source stuff and maybe use some ideas that other people put on the internet, like, it would have been like, oh, my God, absolutely not. That's just not even an option. I think, you know, the fact that open source is sort of an acceptable thing these days and that there is a huge 
community of you know DevOpsy folks out there who are sort of exchanging all their ideas and evolving what you know infrastructure as code actually means to each other or you know in in their own ways over time. Like that's not something that none of these ideas would have been implementable, you know, 15 years ago. It would have been like, yeah, no, sorry, those that's no no free hippie code. Like, that's just not kosher here at the workplace. And that's completely changed. And I think without that piece of this, just like, you know, having not 14.4 modems and uh, everything else that's changed over 10, 20 years, um, we wouldn't be where we are now. I think that that transparency, and especially with regard to enterprise companies, and I mean, not necessarily that they're uh, now again, their openness to to open source and things like that is one thing. But I think back to even just over the last couple of years ago, the reason that, you know, I would go and talk to places. This was, you know, pre working at Chef, but just even a couple of years ago when I was at 10th and they'd say, you're the fifth person to come in here today and tell me that I should be like Netflix. But like that was all the success stories around doing these things where Netflix or Etsy or Facebook. But the, and I always had this sneaking suspicion that I'm like. This is working for other people, but they're not allowed to talk about it. So the only people that can talk about it are people from Etsy and Netflix and, and Facebook. And then the, so we have things all of a sudden, you know, company and again, because companies move slow with their ability to realize that the stuff they're talking about is just plumbing. It's not competitive differentiation. So you have things like Doze, right? You have things like Target coming out and saying, like, this is exactly how we do it. GE, this is what we did, all this success. And it gives a lot of these companies courage to do that because it's and and it's to me that's like a massive thing besides because we knew that open source stuff was behind the firewall, you know, over the last ten to fifteen years. That's been happening. But what hasn't been happening is them sharing the stories. And that happening now, I think, is what's yeah. going to Yeah. Well and, and Netflix it's... helped with that in the beginning. Netflix sharing that stuff, I mean, even them sharing their code, but drove a lot of things. And yeah, I think that's yeah. a transformational moment. And and I think companies being willing to let, I think companies have also recognized that, uh, you know, if you want to be able to retain your employees, like they like to be able to put their stuff on GitHub so that other people can see that, that they're awesome and they can write things and that, you know, people like to go out and talk about what they're doing. And when they can't, sometimes maybe they think like, this isn't the company I want to work with. So I think some yeah. of it's also just like, a, we'd like to listen to our employees and make them happy. And so I'm glad that, People are feeling like, yes, people want to hear my story, even if it's, you know, like my tale of failure or my tale of awesome, whatever it is. Like you have, always have lessons learned. And I think companies are even OK with people going out and saying like, yeah, we totally sucked on this one. We're waiting for VW on that this week. <laughs> yeah. So we started late and we're running late, but we're so I'm going to move us into our wrap up stuff. But we'll and we have a we have a whole bunch of it. But. We'll go through it at a reasonable pace. So some upcoming conferences. So operability, a whole bunch of DevOps days. Uh, Velocity New York and Europe will be in October. So uh, for the DevOps days that are, if you go to devopsdays.org, you can see all that stuff that's happening in October. Very first DevOps days Detroit will be November 11th through 12th. If you're a listener to ADO, you can get a 10% discount with the code ADO10. So it's ADO and then for 10. Right after that, the very next week is the very first DevOps Days. Oh, DevOps Days! I got a DevOps Days Ohio, which is in Columbus, and that's November 18th and 19th. And you can save 10% there with the with the discount code Arrested. Yes, I tried to ask them to both use the same code. 
Don't get me started. The Chef Community Summit, if you use the code ARRESTEDDEVOPS, you can get 20% off your registration. The Seattle version of the summit will be October 14th and 15th. And the London version is November 3rd and 4th. Go to chef.io slash summit. PuppetConf is going to be October 5th through the 9th in Portland. It's not too late to register. Eric, do you know the where people go to do that? Or just search for PuppetConf and they'll Puppet, find it? PuppetConf.com, unsurprisingly. There you go. It's that easy. PuppetConf.com. And Ansible Fest is November 19th in San Francisco. Go ahead and register away. Uh, Robin, where do they just At go? Ansible.com slash AnsibleFest. There you go. It's that easy. We will the config, config Management Camp in Ghent is going to be in, in, in February, but the CFP should be coming soon. So if you follow at CFG MGMT camp for D on Twitter, you'll find out what's going on with that. Coming up, I am traveling a whole bunch. Um, I'm leaving. I'm going to spend a few days on vacation in Palm Springs and where it's going to be like in the hundreds while it's like nice and balmy and 75 here in Chicago. But next, I'm going to be in Phoenix for a chef event yeah. on, on Tuesday and Wednesday. And this time, maybe I'll see Robin and we'll recognize each other. Yes, uh, like last time that was. Robin and I, like, we're at karaoke together with a group of people and introduced <laughs> each other only, introduced each, ourselves to each other only by first name. And we hadn't met in person before, just on Twitter. And then I realized, like, later in the night, that I was like, oh my God, that was Robin. And I sent her this, like, if you're a DM or a tweet, and I was like, oh my God, I'm such an asshole. She's like, I didn't know it was you either. It's <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think the, the worst part was that I, I felt really bad for uh, Mr. Ducey, who was like, this is Robin, and she works at Elastic. I was like, um, we should... Uh, about that. <laughs> yeah, about that. Uh, I just got a new job. Where are you working? Yeah. 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 Oh, well. You're at the oh, sales off like event. Stuff and you work friends. It's okay. We're all friends. Hug ops we all drinking. around. It was drinking time. <laughs> exactly. So. Uh, I'm going to be at Austin. I'm going to Austin City Limits and I will be at the Chef Community Summit as well. So, Trevor? Uh, I will also be at the Chef Community Summit, but before that, I will be in Norwalk, Connecticut, the 5th through the 9th of October. Uh, you have a lot of listeners in Norwalk. There. It's actually just outside of New York City, so we might have some. Oh. some uh, <laughs> Norwalk some, represent. <laughs> if you are from Norwalk and you listen to Arrested DevOps, send us a tweet and tell us. And hang out with me. <laughs> you can do that too. Oh. If I release this show before, um, I don't. I don't know if this is going to get released before you're there. That's so, uh, so besides hanging out, maybe uh, when I'm in Phoenix, Robin, what do you got going on? Uh, so I'm going to OpenStack Summit in Tokyo at the end of October. Ooh. So I, I like it's one of those like I'm leaving on Halloween. I'm flying yeah. for 27 hours, and I'm still getting home in time to take my kids trick-or-treating, which is awesome, uh, if they want to go trick-or-treating this year instead of playing Diablo 3. Um, and uh, God only knows what else in the interim, and then I'll be at Ansel Fest, obviously, and all the other things. But yeah, this is sort of like a lay-low month. Yeah, we're just taking like the next couple weeks. Yeah, AWS. I'm, I might go to reInvent. I don't, I don't really know yet. Haven't <laughs> decided. Eric, I assume you'll be at PuppetCon for sure. I will be at PuppetCon. Cool? Yes. Any cool uh, events in the next couple of weeks? Uh, well, um, I, for any listeners who are also uh, runners, we're doing a 5K the Thursday at PuppetCon. So if you're attending and want to run, uh, check it out on the schedule page and hit me up if you want to um, volunteer to help people guide, ar guide around the waterfront. It's going to be a good time. We awesome. had uh, 50 people do this last year. It was fun. Oh, Running. sweet. Hmm. Yeah. I hear it's a thing. So let's... It is a thing, this yogging. 
Um, let's go into our checkouts and retro. We'll start with you, Joshua. So just checkouts, I mean. I don't know of why it says retro. <laughs> um, maybe we're doing retro checkouts. Maybe I should uh, pick some music from the 80s or something. <laughs> First checkout is Chef Policy Files. This is a new feature that we've been uh, releasing various parts of over the last few months. Uh, I'm doing a webinar next week which is probably going to be last week by the time the episode is published. So <laughs> September 30th, there's a webinar and there's a link in the show notes. Uh, so you should be able to get access to the, uh, the recording of that um, for that. And then Chef DK, which should probably be out by the time you hear this, if you're listening to it on uh, you know, iTunes or whatever. Um, and that's got some new features and fun things for uh, policy file usage. And then my last checkout is to check out Fat Scotch Ale by Silver City Brewing. And if you ever go to Seattle, you can get it at this at the SeaTac Airport in the Seattle Tap Room. It was delicious. Okay. Awesome. So I've got a mission then for uh, for, for some yeah. My first checkout is a uh, this po- uh, podcast or this that I've been listening to pretty uh, obsessively lately. It's a dark techno drum and bass kind of thing. That's called Gray Area from the UK. You can find it on soundcloud.com slash samurai music group, all one word. Um, pretty pretty awesome. And uh, I've actually, tech-wise, I've been uh, working with Ansible a lot lately, which might sound kind of amusing, but uh, it's it's pretty, pretty awesome. And I'm particularly interested in talking to people who are using uh, Ansible in conjunction with Puppet and Chef. So just at me on Twitter. I'm at Apook, A-H-P-O-K on Twitter if you want to uh, hit me up if you're, if you're interested in talking more about, about your use case and what you're doing with that. Robin. So first I'll say, Eric, I know lots of those peeps, so I will be happy to funnel them towards you. Awesome. Uh, let's see, my checkouts. I was sort of curious what this part was, and now I now I know because I listen to everybody else. Uh, so I guess my first checkout would be uh, Ansible 2.0 is coming out soonishly. Uh, but if you want to go, you know, look at the Devel branch and try things out, that would be awesome. Uh, Related to my past life, Fedora 23 beta is coming out, and uh, as I always recommend, try these things out because they are the future of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. So if you would like to complain about something that, you know, might affect you in the future, the time to look at it is now. So go get it. Uh, it's like Fedora or getfedora.org, I think. I don't know. They've changed all this. We'll put a of link crap. in the show notes. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes, and I'll pretend like I'm a conscientious former Fedora project leader here sitting on my uh, MAC. Uh, and then, finally, I guess uh, I'll, I'll pimp out Splatoon for my daughter because she thinks it's the greatest Wii game ever in the history of mankind. Cool. All right, Trevor, take us home. Well, All I'm right. Well, like, give almost. Mine. <laughs> take us take home. Take us home to you. To the dungeon. Penultimately. Yeah. Penultimate <laughs> checkout is Trevor. It's been that so kind of podcast. I, uh... I just picked up a new board game called Welcome to the Dungeon. It's a super quick game. You can play it at lunch. Um, it's lots of fun. It's like a little little dungeon crawler. Everybody everybody agrees on a hero for the dungeon, and then everybody kind of bets with monsters, and then eventually everybody kind of um, folds, and the last person in who, who didn't fold has to fight the dungeon. And uh, if they win, they win. If they don't win, they lose some health. It's really interesting, and it's really kind of stab-your-buddy kind of fun. It's it's inter- good stuff. Secondly, uh, I've been playing Rocket League a little bit lately, and that's been a, a good time as well. Matt? Okay. Cool. So uh, my favorite little game to be playing on my phone lately has been Pac-Man 256. Uh, it came out a little while ago. It's a new version of Pac-Man that has 
different upgrades and weird stuff. It's super fun and, and addicting and is very much perfect for the like, I'm just sitting here in the lobby waiting for someone for five minutes. Um, as listeners know, I do love some audiobooks. So the two audiobooks I listened to recently was one was The Martian, which by the time you're listening to this will be a movie in theaters starring Matt Damon. I think it's coming out on October 2nd. Uh, look, I was trans. I was going through old episodes of ADO recently and realized that Bill Joy on our culture episode, his checkout was the same book, but not in audiobook form. And I also just finished Felicia Day's audiobook, which is called You're Never Weird on the Internet, Almost. And so if you're uh, any of her work uh, with Geek and Sunday or The Guild or just in fan of nerd stuff, it was a super fun book and I really enjoyed it. I'm sure the, the, the non-version would be great too, but... Uh, read by the author, and that was great. So I expect, and we'll have links to all these things in the show notes, of course. We're going to be adding a feature to the show where every week we're going to be talking about a couple different other podcasts you might want to check out in the future uh, that are DevOps related. But that's just a preview for me to tell you that's happening rather than listing them all off as a way it's listed in my show notes. So Trevor, your turn to talk. <laughs> thanks, thanks again to our sponsors. Be sure to visit them at ArrestedDevOps.com slash 10th Magnitude slash VictorOps and slash Datadog. Thanks so much to Eric, Josh, and Robin for joining us. This is where if you guys would like to say any kind of things along those lines, this is an opportunity to say so. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Wow, that was like just begging. We're like, please say thank you back to me. It was say, this is when you should say, it was a pleasure to be on the show. It was my favorite podcast ever be on. You guys are so rad. This is the best non-echoing podcast I've been on all day. Right? Oh, fantastic. I'm so glad that that was an experience for you. Robin, I think you should go into iTunes and leave us a review that says this podcast does not echo and I give it five stars. And if anyone else who listens to the show uh, has an iTunes account, go to the iTunes store and give us a rating and review. We really appreciate it. It would be super awesome. And we'd love to know what you think of what? Oh, I was just going to say the next part. (laughs) Or you could, uh, we'd love to hear what you have to say about the episode. You could leave us a comment at arresteddevops.com slash 44. So you can follow us on Twitter at Arrested DevOps. Uh, we are always happy to get your idea input uh, or feedback in general at shows at ArrestedDevOps.com. Let us know any ideas you have for future episodes. Uh, I'm Matt at Matt Stratton. I'm Trevor at Trevor G. Hess. We're Arrested DevOps, and remember, there's always DevOps in the banana stand. <laughs>